Our text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. If you happen to be using one of your pew Bibles, and there should be one in a pew in front of you, you'll find that uh, on page 46. If you're just joining us this Sunday, uh, we're in the middle of a series, towards the beginning of a series on the book of Exodus. As we're looking at the book of Exodus from now until the end of the summer, we're, we're looking at the story of a God who comes and who saves, and a God who sets free. That's what the story of Exodus is about. It's about a God who sets his people free. So we're going to see how that story continues this morning. Uh, and before we read, let's, uh, let's pray together. Please, please pray with me. Father, we thank you that this is, in fact, your word. We need to hear from you. And you are a God who has not held yourself far off, but has moved in close, and who has spoken to us. Would you speak to us this morning? Open our hearts to your word, and your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of, I- the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord to us for our good. Uh, this afternoon, or excuse me, this afternoon, in afternoon this, uh, this past week, when I was working on the sermon, I was, I was at a coffee shop, and these two, uh, two high, I think high school girls, 
came in and they sat down near nearby and started talking. And uh, so I sort of overheard part of their conversation. Uh, let me give you a public service announcement. Uh, if you ever walk into a public place and you see a guy over there with a computer and his Bible open, like just be careful what you say because you could easily become sermon fodder. Um, <laughs> these two girls sat down. They start talking. And they mention the, the, the name of this guy, and, and, and they're talking back and forth, and I'm sort of reconstructing in my mind what this conversation must be. You know, one of those conversations about, okay, so there's this guy, and I, and I don't know how to interpret what he's doing, and are we in a relationship, or are we not, and what should I think about it? My friend said this, and your friend said this, and uh, I've got a friend who works with college students who said that the college uh, women, and I think it's true of high school and, and beyond, that everybody has the council of seven. Okay, so anytime something happens in your life, uh, especially relationship oriented, you go to your own personal council of seven best friends, and you discuss it back and forth uh, to try to figure out and interpret what's going on. Now, men don't have that. They have golfing buddies, but it's the same, uh, you know, same idea, I guess. So this poor girl, she only had the council of two, not the council of seven. But they're asking these questions about relationship. And think about how much energy we are burning, have burned, will, will burn over the course of our lifetime, thinking about questions like this, about relationships. This passage is a question about uh, a very serious relationship. And this passage is a question that, uh, that says this about God. Who is he? What is he like? What does it mean to be in relationship with him? Who is this God who's coming to us? That's a situation that Moses is in, as here he is confronted by God with this specific call on his life. Okay, these are the questions Moses has to ask. God who? What God is this that I'm talking to? What God am I to be in relationship with? Better put for us, what kind of God is God, this God that confronts us? What's he's like? If, for Moses, if I'm going to listen to him and obey him and return to Egypt and bring these people out, just what kind of God am I dealing with? That's the question for us, isn't it? What kind of God are we dealing with? Because if you think that this God really did speak out of a, a burning bush, and if he really did come and deliver his people out of Egypt, and if he really does speak to us as well, then the question for us is, what kind of God is this who is calling to us? Because this is, of course, the, ult- the ultimate question for us. If this God really exists, then it has incredible implications for us. And there are only two uh, ways to react that have any real integrity to them. You might look at this and say, I don't, I don't buy a word of it turn around and walk in the other direction. Or if you look at this and believe that this is, in fact, the Word of God, that He exists and He speaks like this, then that changes everything, doesn't it? If God really does speak from burning bushes, if He really does free lost and oppressed people, if He really does call to us, then that changes everything. But your only two uh, options are to reject it or walk towards it because all the middle options of, I believe it's true, but I'm going to hold it at arm's length. I believe it's true but I don't think it has serious repercussions in my life. It lacks intellectual and moral and spiritual integrity. The only thing we can do when we're confronted by a God like this is listen. And it matters what kind of God is this who's speaking to us. So that leaves us with this question. What is he saying to us? And what does he want us to know about himself? So we're going to see three things here this text shows us this morning about this God who calls to Moses and calls to the Israelites and calls to us. We're going to see three things here. The initiative of God, and the character of God, and the name of God. Those three things. So first, the initiative of God, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Here's a starting question for us. How do you get into a relationship with God to begin with? How does something like that even begin? How does it start? 
Well, look at Moses, who's coming into a relationship with God here. And remember his, his history. Uh, briefly, Exodus chapter 1, God's people enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. A murderous pharaoh destroying the, the sons of Israel as they're born in order to control the population. Beginning of chapter 2, this one baby is saved. This baby Moses, miraculously saved from Pharaoh's wrath and brought up in Pharaoh's own household. And one day, at age 40, he walks out to see his people, his fellow Israelites. He sees an Egyptian oppressing an Israelite, and he strikes him down and murders the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. The next day, what he's done is discovered, and he has to flee for his life to the land of Midian, where he's now, at this point in the story, been for 40 years. An entirely new life, an entirely different life. He spent half of his life now in a foreign land. He's gotten married, he's raised children, and he's a shepherd out in the desert leading these little sheep. Moses' resume was anything but impressive at this point. From anybody's vantage point of evaluating his life, 40 years out here in the desert, not a promising start, but how does a relationship for him begin with God, by God coming after him. Because one thing is clear here is Moses was not looking for God. He ran away from his people. He ran away from Egypt. He's out in the desert tending sheep. And he is not looking for God, but God comes looking for him. And he does it in this amazing way. Moses is walking along the foot of Mount Sinai, where they will come back one day in this story. And he sees a burning bush. This bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And uh, much as we might react, Moses is, uh, is shocked and fascinated by this. So he, he starts to come closer to see, um, to see what's going on. When I, when I read this, I, I can't help remembering. You guys remember the, the, the TV show Ripley's Believe It or Not? And Jack Palance was the, was the MC for the show. And I can hear his voice at the end of every segment saying, you know, believe it or not. Uh, and, and this sort of, sort of has that feel of like this complete bizarre thing. That's what he thought too. And that's why he goes to look, and he sees this bush burning and not being consumed. And in the middle of that bush, he hears a voice, a voice that speaks to him that says, Moses, Moses. Now it stops him in his tracks. Now let me ask us this. Um, do you expect that God would actually be interested in a relationship with you? Now, now some of us might say, might say, no, I don't know why. God would at all be interested in that. Some of us, if we're honest, would say something more like this. Well, of course. I mean, God's sort of in the business of being in relationship with people. And I like me. I'm sure God would like me. I mean, why? what else does he have to think about other than something like getting to know some, a great person like me? Well, and there's something, you know, there's something right. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. God comes to us in relationship. But the point here that strikes me for Moses as God comes after him is that it completely surprises him. Because he is not looking for this. He finds much more than he thought he was going to find that day in the desert with his sheep. Do you see what's happening? God is initiating with Moses. He's coming after him. Bringing a relationship to him that he was not looking for. Now, in many ways, Moses is, is unique. He's the only one in Scripture we hear about who uh, hears a word from a, from a burning bush. He's got this special call in his life to go and deliver God's people. So maybe you think, of course, God wants a relationship with Moses. But remember why God is calling him. 
saying, Moses, I'm bringing you into a relationship with me, and I'm sending you to Egypt to find my people, to bring them out, and bring them right back here so that they might know me as well. The same God who's initiating with Moses is initiating with all his people. And he's the same God who initiates with us. It's a story right through the Bible. Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall, when everything has fallen apart. They hear God walking in the garden. Adam and Eve, where are you? And they're hiding in the trees. What does God do? He continues to come after them, and he clothes them, and he reinstitutes relationship with them. Noah, in the middle of a world gone very bad, coming, God coming to Noah and saying, I'm going to save the world through you. God coming to Abraham, this pagan in a foreign land, and saying, I'm putting my promise on you and all your descendants. God pursuing Moses. God pursuing King David, picking him out of his whole nation in order to save and lead his people, making great promises to him. And we see it in Jesus, too, pursuing his people. Jesus says some amazing things about his pursuit of us. John chapter 6, verse 44, he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then on the last meal that he shares with his disciples before his death, as he's talking to his closest followers, he says this to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should last. Luke 19.10, he says, Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Our God is a God who initiates, who comes after us. It's the first thing we see about this God with whom Moses meets. Second thing, we see something about God's character. Okay? This God who initiates, what, what is he like? What do we see about him? And you know, when you first meet someone, whether you're an especially perceptive person uh, or not, you're already forming a, a first impression of that person, which, which may or may not turn out to be true over time. Think about first impressions. When Elizabeth and I first met each other when we were in college, uh, at the time we were both part of a Christian fellowship on campus in our varsity, and I was the large group coordinator and the MC. And so she came to one of our, our large group meetings, and she sees me. And at, at the time, you know, I, I had long hair, which was, which was sort of cool in the early 90s. It didn't particularly look cool on me, but... Uh, <laughs> And it's funny, my, my, my memory of that were from her at some time is telling me that she thought I was sort of a cool guy. The other thing, I had this car, and there was a little radio sticker on the back, and so she assumed I listened to cool music. And Well, we later found out, she later found out that was the, the, the sticker for the, the local NPR station, and um, I finally had to get a haircut. I remember all that as Liz thinking I was cool. Camper reminded me, uh, who has who known us for years, and we told him the story later, he reminded me that Liz's actual response when she came to large group that day was, wow, they'll let anybody come here. That's great. <laughs> later that same semester, before I got my much-needed haircut, I was in the grocery store, I was walking down the aisles of the grocery store, and around the corner came this little kid about yay high, just, just running, not looking up. And he stopped about 10 feet in front of me, and he looked up, and he pointed, and he said, bad man, bad man. <laughs> and he turned around and ran off, and I knew that I was the picture of everything this child's mother had warned him of. <laughs> okay, f- believe it. Okay, there's something to First impressions, you know, what is this person that we're coming into a relationship like? And that was a question for Moses. And his impression of God, what is he like? What, what does God think is so vitally important that he must impress upon Moses in this very first meeting? 
Well, you see it in verse 5. Moses is there. He hears Moses, Moses from the bush. And what does he hear next? Stop. Come no closer. The ground you are standing on is holy ground. Take your shoes off. Don't come any closer. The very first thing he hears from this God who appears to him is that he is holy and that that is serious business. It's interesting, the Bible never actually defines holiness for us, but it gives us the idea in the various places we see it. There's a combination of separateness. God is other than us. He is separate from us. And there's an ethical and a moral component to it, that he is uh, absolutely morally pure and righteous. Utterly unique in the universe in that way, that he is holy. Whenever you see people in the Bible come in contact with God's holiness, they are left in awe and often trembling, as we're going to see is the case with Moses as well. Moses' first interaction, this is what God wants him to know, that I am holy. And holy is not simply one more of God's attributes. God is love, God is God's justice, his goodness, his mercy. Holiness is actually an adjective that describes the quality of all his attributes. God's love is a holy love. And his justice is a holy justice. And his mercy is a holy mercy. This is the foundational thing about God that he wants to show and impress on Moses. That's what we came across in our call to worship this morning uh, in Isaiah. As Isaiah sees these angels crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Camper told a story a number of months ago in a sermon that, that I want to repeat because it just, it just fits here so well. He told a story about when he was in Vancouver in, in British Columbia that uh, at a construction site, the, um, a crane or something broke some power lines and, and they fell down into uh, a large puddle of water. And that running through that puddle of water was, was in, uh, a metal fence, a chain link fence that was meant to keep uh, you know, between the street and the construction site. And as those power lines fell, everything just erupted in these sparks and this incredible display of this electrical power. And people that were on the street were just drawn to this amazing sight. And the people on the construction site had, had to hold them back. Because, of course, though this was this sort of strange freak of nature and weirdly uh, compelling and beautiful, it was incredibly dangerous. Because if they were to come and have touched that fence or stepped into that water, the very thing they thought so cool and also beautiful would have, would have immediately killed them. And that's a picture of what's going on here with Moses. As he's drawn to the side of this burning bush, but he hears this word, you are standing on holy ground. Do not come any closer. Isaiah, when he came across this vision of God and hearing the angels crying out, here's what it says. The foundations of the threshold shook, the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in many ways, this is the central dilemma of the Old Testament and of the entire Bible. If God is holy like this, how are we, an unholy people, going to be in relationship with him? How could something like that happen? Uh, I mentioned before that uh, what a central place in the imaginative world our family, of our family that Cinderella has right now. You remember the story of Cinderella, this girl who you know, grows up with her wicked stepmother, wicked stepsisters, and she, um, 
you know, she is incredibly patient with them. She's, she, she serves them graciously in spite of their snubs. She is time and again proves her incredible worth. And you know what the message of Cinderella is? Um, at least one way of looking at it. The message of that story is that good things happen to those who are good. Right? Cinderella unfailingly loving to her family. And finally, finally she gets the recognition in the prince that she's deserved all along. But here's the problem, and it's what Isaiah points to, and it's what Moses points us to. In the real story of our lives, the real story of God in the Bible, we're not Cinderella. We're the stepsisters. You know, we're the mean ones. We're the ones without all the grace. We're the ones who are speaking harshly. We're the ones who are living harshly. We're the ones who are desperately in need. And so a world in which good things come to those who are good doesn't do us any good at all because we need something much more than that. We need a world in which good things come to those who are not good. And that's the central issue not only here but of the Bible. And what's the answer? How are the broken pieces going to be put back together again? How does a holy God create a relationship with an unholy people? Let's take a look at the last point. The name of God. Not only does God come, bring his um, presence to Moses, come and speak of his character, he comes and gives him a name. Because Moses starts in verse 11, he says, Moses asks a different question. God says, I'm going to send you to Egypt. And Moses says, who am I that I would go to Egypt and deliver these people? Who am I? Verse 12, God answers him. He says, no, 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 Moses. You're asking entirely the wrong question. The question is not, who are you? The question is, who am I? Because it says, Moses, I will be with you. Who are you? You will be the one with whom I go. I will be with you. And so Moses' next question is, who then are you? Who are you? God says to him this, Moses, I am the God of your father, and of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. He says, I am the father, I am the God of your fathers, the one who has made the promise to your whole line that I'm going to come and rescue and redeem. That's who I am. And it strikes me in the middle of that that often we hear about God being the God of the fathers in the plural. We see that in verse 15. But in verse 6, when he comes to Abraham, he says, I'm the God of your father. And to Abraham, who grew up away from his own people in the court of Pharaoh and now 40 years in the desert, to come and say, Moses, you do have a family. And I am their God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your father. And Moses, I am your God. That's who I am. And he goes on to tell him his name. Verses 13 through 15. His first response, God says, I am who I am. And then verse 14, God says, my name is, I tell you who I am. He says, I am. That's my name. And then in the next verse, in 15, he says, you will call call me Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh is a Hebrew word that means he is. So God gives his name. God says, my name is I am, and you will call me he is. Okay, Elizabeth and I, when we were naming our children, there are a lot of places we went to look for names. We went to sort of family history, and we went to the, you know, the current list of the top 100 names to make sure we didn't pick something like in the top 50. And you know what it's like to try to, try to name something. But we never considered naming our child a verb. 
and, and if we had picked one, it wouldn't have been the verb to be, right? That's just not what you name someone. But God says, my name is a verb. My name is I am. What's he trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate to them that the central reality in this universe is God and his self-existence. That he is the God of the past and the present and the future. He is the ultimate God, the one who exists and from whom everything else gets its existence. And he comes to these people to whom he's made promises and says, this is my covenant name, my promise name that you will know and will call me Yahweh. I am your God. I am your God. And I'm calling you into relationship with myself. God's name tells us of his presence and his promise with his people that he is there and he will be there. Okay, now, reminds me of something. John chapter 8, the conversation that Jesus gets into with the Pharisees. And they're, as you know, if you've read some of the Gospels, they're the, the religious authorities that Jesus is always butting heads with and is always challenging. And in John chapter 8, verse 25, finally the Pharisees asked Jesus this question. So they said to him, who are you? Okay, that's, that's Moses' question to God. Who are you? Who are we dealing with? And Jesus picks up verse 53 of John 8. Or excuse me, the Pharisees continue. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Very strange conversation. Who are you? Jesus gets to the end of that discourse and he says, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. Because they knew he was talking about Exodus 3. And he was saying, that God who appeared in the desert to Moses and said, I am, Jesus said, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They did not realize that Jesus spoke the truth, but they knew what he was claiming, that he was God, in fact, God himself. And that's where the story of the Old Testament takes us and the story of the New Testament takes us. How does an unholy people come into relationship with a holy God, a holy God like this who breaks into the life of Moses, breaks into the life of Israel, breaks into the life of people like us. We find here that Jesus is, in fact, the greater and fuller gift of God's presence to us. Here again we have the great I Am, this time stepping not into a burning bush, but into human flesh. The holy coming to us, becoming one of us, dying for us in order to forgive us and make us holy to do something that we manifestly could not do for ourselves. God's word to Moses was, do not come any closer, for you are standing on holy ground. God's word to us in Jesus is, though you could not come any closer, I have chosen to step closer to you. Because this barrier for you of holiness is not going to be the final word in your life. Because I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to come and forgive you and draw you in. God says to us, I, the holy God, am going to come and give you the gift of holiness that you might know me.
We've said this book is a book of God setting us free. And here we see the beginning of Moses seeing the freedom to which God calls us. Freedom of relationship. Freedom to come in. Freedom to know Him. It begins right here. Now back to our Council of Seven, or Council of Two for these two high school girls. Are we in relationship? How do I know? What's he like? How can I know? When Moses comes in a relationship with God, how can he know? Because God takes initiative with him. God takes initiative with us. He comes after us. And we can know something about this God who calls to us. We can know his character, that he is holy. And he even does us the great gift of speaking to us his name. I am Yahweh. And fully and finally, we see in the New Testament, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of your word. We thank you that you take initiative with us. We thank you that you show yourself to us. We thank you that you are holy, but that you have not let your holiness keep us from you, but you have come after us. So we look to you. Would you strengthen us in faith even this week to remember your goodness to us, to cling only to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.